so Bill uh, asked me this morning if uh, I ever get nervous right before I'm about to come up and teach. Well, not till now. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Bill, for reintroducing that paranoia. (laughs) I think I used to get a lot more nervous when I was trying to work out my own teaching, you know. Being in the Word of God, this is the Word of God. You deal with it as you will. I'll just give it, and we let the Lord work, and we let His Spirit teach. And I have found over the years, one of my favorite things that I learned early on with the bridge was that my worst Sundays in terms of presentation and and offering on my part were the ones that had the greatest impact. You know, I would get emails and calls, and I'd be sitting there going, Seriously, Sunday? That was impactful for you? And the ones where I just knew I hit it out of the park... Silence. So I've stopped trying to hit it out of the park. We just let God's word be God's word. And again, Revelation chapter 11. Thank you, Brian, for reading it this morning. Let's read it again. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Father, these two verses are vital. I have come to understand in your revelation, Jesus. Vital in our understanding. And I pray we would get there this morning. We have some history to cover, some ground to cover in understanding the significance of your temple, Lord. I pray that you will keep our hearts open even as our minds receive truth, that our hearts would receive Your grace and would receive, Father, the depth of understanding of how great Your love is for us. Thank You for loving us. We don't deserve it, but we are so thankful for it. And we pray now Your grace and understanding Your words by Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, I want to slam you right out of the gate with a bunch of Hebrew and Greek words. And you might want to jot these down because I do believe they are very significant in understanding where we're at in Revelation chapter 11 and what the Lord wants us to know, especially regarding His temple. You see the word temple throughout the Scriptures, Hebrew and Greek. But it's not always the same word. And when we look at the Word, we find out there are different definitions that give us a better picture, even before we study the temple, a better picture of God's intention for the temple. So the first word in the Hebrew is hechal. Hechal. Which is worship complex or palace. The hechal. If you want to transliterate that, just write hechal. And you're close. All right, put a little C in the middle of there. Hechal, a worship complex. So, so when the hechal is referred to, you, you can imagine the entire 35-acre complex of the Temple Mount, with the temple there and the, the outer court of the Gentiles and the wall all the way around. And, and by the way, I, I want to say this right up front. There are, there are those, there's kind of a new theory that the temple wasn't on the Temple Mount as we know it today in Jerusalem, but actually was further down south uh, in the city of David. And I will give you my opinion on that right now. That is bunk. Now, the reason I say that is because having walked 
the temple courts, having walked around the temple itself, having been on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount, seeing the excavations and what has been discovered there, it really doesn't leave much alternative that the Temple Mount is the Temple Mount. Whatever anybody else says about that and ideas, and there are all kinds of, you know, people like to speculate. And in these last days, Christians especially, we love to speculate and get new information and new ideas. But when you, when you walk it, when you see it, when you recognize the archaeological evidence for the temple in that place, it's pretty, pretty easy to know where you are. So the Heichal is that whole structure, that whole complex. It also can be used, the word can be used for palace. So the palace or the worship complex of God. Uh, Another word for that is Mikdash. The Mikdash, which is the holy place. Now Mikdash can refer to the entire holy place of the temple. It can refer to the inner area of the temple. But Mikdash is another one you would see in the Hebrew scriptures. In the Greek, Hieros or Hieros. Hieros which is sanctuary. You see that a lot in the New Testament when we see just the word either sanctuary or temple. It's hieros. Secondly, more specifically, is the word naos. And that's important to know because naos can be translated shrine, but that's the terminology that's used in the New Testament of the inner rooms. That is, when you actually enter into the holy place and then behind it into the holy of holies, the naos. And there are times where only the naos is referred to, as we will see this morning. The inner, when you actually go inside. So as with the tabernacle, so it was with the temple, there's a wall the way around. You go in the first wall and you're into the outer courtyard and, and there's the, the bronze altar and the bronze basin, basin for washing. And then you would go into the naos. Okay? So naos is, is shrine and that's a Greek word there. So hekal, worship complex in Hebrew. Mikdash, holy place in Hebrew. Hieros, sanctuary in Greek, and naos, meaning shrine or inner rooms in the Greek. And the Jerusalem temple was all of the above. You put all that together, it was a worship complex, it was a palace, it was a holy place, a sanctuary, a shrine. But the word I like best in both the Hebrew and the Greek is house. House. The most common reference to the temple in the Bible, in Hebrew, it's either bait or bet, as in Bethlehem. Bethlehem meaning house of bread. They would just refer to the bet, or the bait, being the temple, the house of God. And in the Greek, that's oikos. Oikos is also house. Very, very common way to refer to it. People will refer to their house as their oikos. You know, to be a, a, a house servant would be an oikonomia. So this whole idea of oikos, of house, of bait, of bet, I, I love it because it's so, it's just so personal. God would invite you, would invite me into his house. Come on over to my house, the Lord would say. So I, I like that word. It is a more casual word. But Jesus In John chapter 2, and if you've got your Bible open to Revelation 11, keep your finger there and turn over to John chapter 2 for just a moment. 
Jesus is there in Jerusalem for the first Passover, John gives us great information about the Passovers because Jesus' ministry literally begins with the first Passover and ends with the third one. There are three Passovers talked about in the Gospel of John. And at this very first Passover, Jesus does something that the rest of the Gospel writers refer to at the end of His ministry. John says He does it right at the beginning of His ministry. You know what I'm talking about? The clearing of the temple when Jesus goes into clean house. And He does it at the beginning in John's Gospel and at the end in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So is that a contradiction? No, it's a full picture. I've shared with you before, I'm convinced Jesus did it both times. He cleaned house at the beginning of His ministry and He did it again three years later because He had to. Cleaning house on both ends of the ministry. Well, it tells us in verse 13 of John chapter 2 that the Passover of the Jews was near... And Jesus went up to Jerusalem because you always go up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple, that's the Aeron or Aeros, which is the sanctuary. He found in the sanctuary those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their table. And he made a scourge of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and to those who were selling the doves he said take these things away and stop making my father's house oikos a place of business see to Jesus this was personal to Jesus this was not a sanctuary it was not a shrine it was his father's house it was home Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Quoting Psalm 69 verse 9, here in the Greek it's oikos, zeal for your house will consume me. And if you read it in Psalm 69 verse 9, it is zeal for your bet. Again, house. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as to your authority for doing these things? And we'll come back to that later in the teaching. But you know what the problem was? Why the money changers were all set up there in the outer court. That would be the court of the Gentiles, by the way. As we shared on Wednesday night, that's the area where non-Jewish folk could come into the temple and look at the structures and get a sense of what was going on and even see God's interaction with a people. It was a place where the outsider could come inside at least that far. Where the Gentile was welcome. Now they couldn't go further, but they could be in the court of the Gentiles. This was so important to Jesus, and He was so angry at the time when He saw this mess, because that's where the Gentiles got to see God, or at least draw near. And what did they see? Buying and selling and ripping off and noise and clamor. And Jesus is like, this is not what you do to my father's house. He's upset, I believe, in that moment more for the Gentiles than he is for the Jews. You know why they were doing it? Why they set up the money changers in that place? They forgot who the owner of the house was. Or they ignored him altogether. And in so doing, they undermined the father's intentions for his house. And that's the question to keep in mind. Whose house is it? Who's the owner? Who's the inhabitant? How we answer that question will make all the difference in our lives between, I believe, the holy and the profane. Let me read a psalm to you here. This is Psalm 11. Psalm 11, which says, In the Lord 
I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Oh, the Lord is in his holy temple, his hechal. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Are we not seeing that in the tribulation? In the description through the revelation, what David wrote a thousand years before Christ. We now see as revealed in this prophecy. And then David says, Psalm 11 verse 7, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. Now, when David wrote that psalm, the temple was non-existent. The Jerusalem temple was not there. All they had at the time was the temporary tabernacle. The tabernacle that that went through the wilderness for 40 years. And then for 369 years, the tabernacle rested at Shiloh in the land. And then it was taken for another 70 years from there to the house of Abinadab. Again, I'm talking about the temporary tabernacle, that dwelling place, but that wandering tent that the children of Israel take through the wilderness to Shiloh or Shiloh and all the people then would go up to worship it at Shiloh. And then from there, it got moved. Remember, remember what happened? Quick history. The tabernacle got taken from Shiloh into battle and was taken by the Philistines. Philistines didn't have it long, but it was long enough because they started having major rat infestations and hemorrhoids. I mean, that really was the... (laughs) I'm telling you, read the story. That's what happened. So they send back the ark on a cart. Ends up in the house of Abinadab again for 70 years. Well, David... David then constructed a new tabernacle after buying the the threshing floor of Aruna in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, where the Temple Mount is. After buying that, he constructed a new tabernacle and had the ark brought up from the house of Abinadab. And, well, things didn't go so well. The ark started to totter on a cart. They weren't even carrying it up the right way. It's supposed to be carried on poles by priests, but they put it on a cart and they're rolling it up and the cart bumps and the, the, the ark of the covenant seems to be falling and poor Uzzah. Uzzah reaches out to stop it and dies instantly. So they stop progress right there and the ark of the covenant ends up at the house of Obed-Edom. And Obed-Edom and his family, they start to get blessed. Things begin going really well for them. David recognizes that. And then doing it the right way, they bring the Ark of the Covenant up to the new tabernacle, now constructed by David, that is on the Temple Mount where the Ark would rest. And then it was David's desire, David's desire to build the Temple of the Lord. But putting this all together in brief, the Ark, the the, the tabernacle that is, the tabernacle went through the wilderness for 38 years. And then for another 369 years at Shiloh, and then 70 years at the house of Abinadab, and then finally brought up to Mount Moriah, where it sat for another probably 40 years until Solomon ultimately finishes building the first temple. And then the ark would be taken out of the tabernacle and into the first temple. The reason I tell you this 
It's interesting to me, if you just do the math, you discover that the tabernacle lasted longer than either of the permanent temples. That God's Ark of the Covenant, where He said, I will meet you there, we will be in contact there, we'll have fellowship there. The tabernacle was more permanent, though it was a temporary tent, than either the first or the second temple. What does that tell you? It reminds me that our dwelling on this earth is temporary. That we are not here long. We are not supposed to be. We were not intended to be here for long. We will come to the heavenly house of God. These dwellings change. These dwellings will be immortalized, as it were. When the mortal will put on immortality and the perishable will put on the imperishable, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. And Jesus said, John 14, verse 2, Note the language, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where's that, Jesus? In my Father's house. The real house. The eternal house. Psalm 5 verse 7 says, As for me, by your abundant loving kindness or grace, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. That's Psalm 5. David referring to the holy temple. Psalm 11, as we read a moment ago, David referring to the holy temple. For David had understanding. The holy temple was not a structure built by hands. The holy temple was the heavenly temple of God. And that's where we want to go. And that was David's focus. When he would think about or consider the worship complex, the palace, the house of God, it was in the heavens. And so when the original tabernacle was constructed by Moses in the wilderness, and the Jerusalem temple was then later built, both were patterned after the heavenly reality. Both had their design. And that's where we're headed. To the heavenly reality. With all that as background, back to Revelation 11, verse 1. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. So Rick, you're suggesting that's the the temple of God. So that's the heavenly temple? No, I'm not. Where is John at this time in the Revelation? Remember we talked about you need to pay attention to where John is? Is he in heaven, caught up in vision, caught up to see what's going on up there, or is he on earth? At this time, John is on earth. And that's critical to understand, to note. This is the first mention of the temple on earth in the Revelation. The first mention of the temple on earth. Now, we've seen the temple mentioned before, back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, where Jesus said, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. I'm going to make him a pillar in the temple of God. That's, that's the heavenly temple, the eternal temple. I'm going to make him a pillar there. We also see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 15, 
for this reason, speaking of the martyrs who come out of the tribulation, out of the great tribulation, out from it, out before it, for this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them, the heavenly temple. Okay, John, in that point, is caught up and he's, he's looking at this scene in heaven. But in Revelation chapter 11, we are on earth. And it's fascinating, and it's really spun around Bible scholars for decades, if not centuries, to try and understand how can this be. Here in verses 1 and 2, two times the word temple is used here. Two times we see the temple mentioned here. And they're the only two times in the entire revelation uh, of the temple on earth. On earth. Just twice, verses 1 and verses 2 of chapter 11. What I'm telling you here, and what has really stunned prophecy scholars, is the realization that there must be a temple in the tribulation. There must be a temple built in Jerusalem. A third Jerusalem temple. There's an entire institute. We see it when we go to Jerusalem, when we go to Israel. The Temple Institute. And it's put together by these these Orthodox Jews who want to see the temple built. Their desire is to see it rebuilt. And they have everything done. The lampstand. The altar of incense. The table of showbread. Overlaid in pure gold by biblical design. They're already constructed and ready to go into this new temple. The bronze basin, the the bronze altar ready for the new temple. All of the, the pans and the cups and the bowls and everything for the temple ready. They have everything. Well, they don't have the Ark of the Covenant, but they've got everything else. For the new temple, every time you hear in the news about the red heifer, oh, there may be a red heifer, a spotless red heifer, people get all excited. Why? Because you've got to have the red heifer and the ashes of the red heifer so that you can consecrate the temple. So since we have that, and we got this, we got all this other stuff, ready for the new temple. Why would they be so excited about a third temple? Well, those Jews are excited because they want a temple again. They haven't had one since A.D. 70. Christians are excited Prophecy nuts especially. Because a third temple, we know when that's going to happen. We know it's going to be constructed before or at the early stages, early days of the tribulation. Cheryl asked me just last week, are we going to see that temple built? Or are we going to be aware of the construction project? I kind of doubt it. I doubt it. I think we'll be otherwise occupied. So let's talk about that. Think about that. There are a total of four Jerusalem temples that are talked about in Scripture. But if you really are paying attention, you'll realize that there are the four Jerusalem temples, but there's another three temples that are also mentioned, all temples of God for a total of seven in all. Now, note this. Follow it through with me this morning. The first one I've already mentioned is the heavenly temple. The real one. The actual. Acts 17.24 tells us the God who made the world and all the things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Where does God literally dwell? In the heavenly temple. 
in that heavenly place. In fact, if you look at the end of Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, it tells us, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of His covenant appeared. By the way, temple there is naos. It's, it's the sanctuary. It's the inner sanctuary. So the holy place, the holy of holies, the temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. Well, well, there's the ark. If you've been wondering where it is, it's right there. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Wait a minute, Rick. You think the ark is in heaven? We'll talk about that Wednesday night. But the temple of God, which is in heaven, the the chapter, it's wonderful. Chapter 11 begins with the temple on earth and ends with the temple in heaven because the temple on earth must be patterned after the temple in heaven. The heavenly temple is the model. It is the pattern. But go back 3000 years. So first we recognize the heavenly temple. But then you have the first Jerusalem temple. The first Jerusalem temple. David wanted to build it. I, I wanted to read you the story and go through it. I, for time's sake, I'm not going to this morning. Second Samuel chapter 7. Let that be your Sunday afternoon homework. Second Samuel 7. You need to read that and look at that. David's desire to build the temple. He goes to the prophet Natan. Natan says, go for it. David starts to really get excited. That night, the Lord says to Natan, well, I guess I'm going to tell you the story anyway. The Lord says to Natan, go tell David, I don't dwell in a house built with hands. Besides, you're not the guy who's going to build my temple. In fact, tell him, I'll build him a house. 2 Samuel 7. And so God established the bait of David, the, the bet of David, not Bethlehem, but the house of David forever through the son of David, Jesus Christ. A new house established. See, temples come and go, that house remains. Temples may fall, that house is eternal. Temples may burn to the ground, that house through Jesus Christ is forever the house of David. But David didn't build the first temple. That wasn't his handiwork. His heart was in it. He wanted to build it, but realized as a warrior with blood on his hands, God said, no, no, I need my temple. If you're going to build a temple on earth, it needs to be built by a man of peace. And so in comes Shlomo, Solomon, who would be whose name means peace, and he would be the one to build the first temple in Jerusalem. However, the blueprints, all the planning for it, the implements for the temple, all that went into it, materials, David worked on that for the latter part of his life. So that once he passed away, everything was set to go. First Chronicles 28.19, David speaking to Solomon said, All this the Lord made me understand in writing by His hand upon me all the details of this pattern. See, the same thing had happened with the tabernacle. God told Moses, see to it that you do this by the pattern shown to you. Why? Because it's based off of the heavenly reality. The earthly shadow the heavenly substance. So Moses had the tabernacle built by specification. Now David's telling Solomon, build this temple in Jerusalem. Build it by specification. This is what the Lord has given me. And so Solomon did. Carried out the plans to the letter. And in 959 B.C., 
1 Kings chapter 6, verses 37 and 38, if you want to just note that. Solomon had the Ark of the Covenant brought into the finished first temple, into the Holy of Holies of the very first house of God there in Jerusalem. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 tells us that it happened when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God was smiling on Solomon in Jerusalem that day. And they finished the temple, brought in the ark, and the presence of God was so full, the glory of God filling up the temple, so rich, so thick, so heavy, the priests had to get out. They couldn't even serve. Strangely, something would happen. That temple, in which the glory of God dwelt, where the sacrifices were offered, the the touch point between earth and heaven for the Jewish people. If you read the history of the kings of Israel, it fell into disrepair time and time again. Where people didn't even go to temple. I shared Wednesday night. Feasts weren't even celebrated. The feast of Sukkot was not celebrated from the day of Joshua all the way to, to the day of Ezra. They just didn't celebrate it. They didn't keep it. Why? Well, we got other things to do. Life's busy, man. We got, we got things going on. Got to make that important meeting, you know? And so they didn't celebrate. And the temple fell into disrepair. Every now and then a king would come along and say, we need to fix this up. We need this to be better taken care of. And so they'd do some renovations and try and nice it up a bit. But it'd fall into disrepair again. To the point where no one even had a Bible for, by the days of Josiah. They found an old copy of Torah law rolled up in the temple, dusted it off. Josiah began to read it as every king was commanded to do. And it changed everything in the days of Josiah. 370 years after this temple was built, the first temple in Jerusalem, Ezekiel, in captivity now in Babylon, in the first wave of several waves of captivity, he gets a vision. He sees the temple. And in seeing the temple, he sees the glory of the Lord depart. From above the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim, he sees the glory move out to the threshold. And then from the threshold, out to the eastern gate of the temple. And then from the eastern gate of the temple, he watched the glory of God cross the Kedron Valley and go up, hovering above the Mount of Olives directly to the east. Ezekiel saw this happen. You can read about it in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11. Very interesting, a very disturbing vision because God's leaving home. The glory is departing the house. The old rabbis, and this is fascinating to me, the old rabbis, for whatever reason, believed and taught that the glory of the Lord, once departing the temple, remained above the Mount of Olives for just over three years. The length of the time of Jesus' ministry. Fascinating. The same amount of time that Jesus ministered, and where did Jesus' ministry ultimately end? On the Mount of Olives. From where did Jesus ascend? The Mount of Olives, ascending back up into heaven, as if, as understanding the glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ, going home to the heavenly temple. Once and for all, departing this earth. But back at the first temple, Ezekiel saw it. 
the glory of the Lord left that temple before Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed that first temple in 586 B.C. on the 9th of Av, or what Jews even remember today, they call it Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is a very solemn day in Jerusalem to this very day because on that day, the first temple was destroyed. Jeremiah 52 verse 13 says, He, that is Nebuchadnezzar, burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every large house, he burned with fire. Now, if you've been in Jerusalem, you know all the houses are made of stone. How does that work? I'll tell you in a minute. Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 6. Lamentations 2, 6. Says he has violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. He has destroyed his appointed meeting place. Who has? Nebuchadnezzar? No. God. Jeremiah, I've told you before, writing Lamentations, we believe, was sitting on the Mount of Olives as he wrote. Watching Jerusalem burn, looking at the smoldering mess, the destruction of the temple now flattened to the ground. As the flames and the smoke rose up, he begins to write, and Jeremiah, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, realizes the destructor of the temple was not Nebuchadnezzar, it was the Lord God Himself. As he writes, Lamentations 2.6, he has violently treated his tabernacle Like a garden booth, he has destroyed his appointed meeting place. The Lord has caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbat in Zion, and he has despised king and priest in the indignation of his anger. The Lord has rejected his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord, as in the day of an appointed feast. The Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not restrained his hand from destroying. And he has caused rampart and wall to lament. They have languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her kings and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Why is the law no more? Because without the temple, you have no law. The temple and the sacrifices are at the heart of Jewish Torah law. You cannot have the law without the sacrifice. And so the law is no more. And also her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Gang, listen, the temple. The temple is all about drawing near to the Lord. Why do you have someone over to your house? Why do you invite someone into your home? To draw near. To enjoy fellowship and relationship and closeness. And that's why the Lord allowed the temple to be built in the first place. So that the people could draw near. But if the people's heart were already far from Him, what's the point? You know, I want people here to hear. But... Not to fill seats. I want to see the Bridge Fellowship grow so more ears are hearing, more hearts are receiving the truth of God's Word and the Spirit of God Himself. That fellowship can happen in the name of Jesus Christ. But we don't want to just fill up seats. Because if we have a bunch of full seats but empty hearts, what's the point? God wants us to be here with full hearts. Open hearts to receive everything He has for us. 
And the problem was in Israel, their hearts were empty. They weren't going to temple. And even if they were, it was religion. It was rote. And he said, that's it. And so that first temple was destroyed. Even the gates sunk into the ground. That's an interesting verse. Lamentations 2.9. We always talk about this when we're in Jerusalem. By the way, we're going back, Lord willing, in March, last week of March, first week of April 2020. So start to plan. We're going to be giving you information about that very soon. I can't believe it's time to start talking about that again. But it is, Mary, right? So here's the thing. Speaking of the sunken gates... Her gates have sunk into the ground. Boy, you'd almost think if that was true, there'd be some archaeological evidence of that. In 1969, archaeologist James Fleming was digging around the rain-soaked base of the eastern facade of the gate of the Temple Mount. Right now, when you see that eastern wall, if you see it in pictures, or people have brought pictures back from, from Israel and look at it, or if you Google it, you can see the eastern wall, and there's the eastern gate. Whoa, the eastern gate of the Temple. I remember the first time I saw it, I was so stunned. I was in awe. I was like, wow, that's it. That's the gate. Jesus is going to walk right through that gate. And then, then one of the Bible teachers who was with us said, It's a phony. What? It's just a facade. Huh? That's not the gate. What are you talking about? That gate was made by Suleiman the Magnificent, the Muslim conqueror. What? <laughs> I'm bummed out on the Mount of Olives. 1969, James Fleming is right at the base of that gate. And it is huge. He's down there and he's kind of digging around. It wasn't supposed to be there, but no one was really paying attention in 1965. They were all stoned. And so he's there messing around at the base of the eastern facade of the Temple Mount. And all of a sudden, because of the rains, the ground gave way. And he fell through and found himself in true Indiana Jones fashion, knee-deep in bones. What a creepy, cool thing for an archaeologist. Whoa, whoa! Cool. And James Fleming looked up and saw directly beneath the facade the arches of the original eastern gate. Where? Sunken into the ground. Exactly as the Bible describes, exactly as the Bible tells. You know what David says in Psalm 24, 7? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king may come in. And he will. Well, how are the gates going to be lifted up? Oh, that's another study later in Revelation. But earthquakes are going to help. I'll tell you that much. But in 538 B.C., 538 B.C., the temple 70 years or so before, not even 70 years, the temple, first temple decimated, all the gold and silver and bronze articles and all the furniture hauled off to Babylon, except the ark, except the ark. And the story of the ark is full of intrigue. It's another story for another time. But in 538 B.C., the Babylonian exiles, those Jews hauled off, when the first temple was destroyed, when the land was decimated, they make their way back. Small group of them. But they come back to Jerusalem. They lay the foundation for the second temple. So the first temple, destroyed. Second temple, they lay the foundation. They set up the altar. They offer sacrifice. And that was in 536 B.C., but the second temple wouldn't be finished until 515 B.C. It would take them 21 years to build the second temple. So this is number three. If you're keeping track of it, we have the heavenly temple, we have the first temple, and we have the second temple, which is actually number three in our list of temples. 
But the second temple then was built. You might remember these names, names that are associated with the building of the second temple. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the prophetic exhortational ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. So those were the four named guys, at least as far as we're concerned, at the time, making sure this got done. Why were Haggai and Zechariah so exhortational? Because the people weren't doing anything. They came back, they laid a foundation, woohoo, set up the altar, had sacrifice, and then they all went to build their own homes. God's temple lay unfinished, unbuilt. And so you can read in both Zechariah and Haggai a big push, get it done. Finish the temple. Man, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38 tells us the first temple for all its glory took seven years to build from start to finish. And it was massive and it was beautiful. The second temple, humble by comparison, took 21 years to finish. Why? Hearts of the people. In fact... Ezra, chapter 3, verse 12, tells us that when that foundation was laid for the second temple, oh, the young men in the crowd cheered. Yes, we're back. Yes, we've got it going on. But the old priests who remembered the former glory wept aloud. Looking at this and remembering what was there, it broke their hearts. I think it's marvelous that God, through Haggai, promised something wonderful about this second temple. It says in Haggai 2, verse 9, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Oh, that prophecy is rich with meaning. And it's not just a double prophecy. I think it's a triple or possibly a quadruple prophecy in its meaning. Because you see, for all the splendor of of Solomon's temple, ultimately, if you compare it, it was less than half the size of Herod's massive overhaul. Big old. Herod's temple was called by Josephus and others one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was magnificent. What a structure. What a glory. Hard to even look at in the sunlight because it was so bright. The gold that was on it. And that white Jerusalem stone. Absolutely stunning. Herod's massive overhaul. Now, we're going to stay on number three, the second temple, because it was still the second temple. But you can call it the second temple, Herod 2.0. Or just H2O. That'll work. So the second temple, H2O. In 19 B.C., After that little second temple had stood for several centuries now, 19 B.C., Herod the Great, trying to curry favor with the Jews, decided to begin a renovation project on the second temple. And while work was going on, the sacrifices still happened. They they worked it out, but, but man, this was a massive work. And the second temple dwarfed the original splendor of Solomon's by the time it was completed. Thus, you could say, fulfilling the prophecy, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Kind of. Even in Jesus' day, 46 years after that construction project of Herod began, it was an awesome complex. An amazing structure. It was not finished at that point. It was still under construction. But you know, when Jesus and the apostles were there and they looked at it, Wow, it was stunning. But as far as we know, 
the Shekinah glory, the cloud of God's glory, never entered the second temple. How can the latter glory of this house be greater than the former glory? Yet the house ended up bigger. The house was more ornate. Herod's renovation project was much more stunning to the eye. How can the latter glory, however, be greater than the former glory if the glory of God didn't enter the temple? Mark 11, verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And so the glory did come in. It looked different. Rather than that bright cloud of glory that Solomon saw, God on human feet walked into the second temple. And there he cleaned house. And he taught in the courts. And he prayed there. And he healed there. And forgave there. And he offered peace there. In that second temple. But by the way, the latter glory of the house will still be greater than any of the former glory. What really makes a house a home? It's those who dwell there. It's the heart that's there. I'm getting ahead of myself. The second temple, H2O, wasn't finished until 63 AD when the final touches were put on Herod's temple. He had long been dead. It was an 82-year project to complete the second temple. And it stood for seven years. Seven years later, Rome invaded Jerusalem and burned the second temple to the ground on the 9th of Av. Same day that the first temple was burned to the ground. You can do a study on this. I encourage you to. We've talked about it before. But note all the tragedies of the Jewish people that happened on the 9th of Av throughout history. And you'll understand why Jews today celebrate Tisha B'Av as a day of mourning and a day of sorrow. First temple destroyed on the 9th of Av. Second temple destroyed, burned to the ground on Tisha B'Av, 70 A.D. Now, let's go back to the question. I thought the temple was built of stone. How does that work? How could it burn? Jerusalem's stone is porous. And it's interesting to note that there are, are moist, there's moisture in the little pockets and and fissures that are in Jerusalem stone. And you heat up Jerusalem stone enough and the stones literally explode. It was an explosive mess. That, That temple, when it went down, I mean, you would have heard explosives and cracks and shocking things as the second temple now burned to the ground. 36 years before that horrific, fiery demolition of the second temple and of all Jerusalem. Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple. And He was going away with His disciples and they came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. Look, Lord, look at that. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that fantastic? He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Archaeologists have unearthed a huge pile of stones at the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. One of those stones, a corner piece I've mentioned to you before, actually has writing in it in Hebrew that says to the place of the trumpet or the place of the blowing that came off of the corner of the Temple, up there at the Temple Mount, not down in the city of David, but where the trumpet would have been set on times of blowing. 
And it's among the rubble there at the base of the Temple Mount. Again, all you got to do to know that the temple was on that 35-acre mount, all you got to do is walk through the archaeological remains and see what has been unearthed by the Jewish authorities there in Jerusalem today. And you will know there's no other place the temple could have been. It was right here. It was clearly right here. All that stuff is still there. Now now listen, by the time John received and wrote the book of Revelation, and this is significant, the second temple was non-existent for 25 years. Do you see what's going on here? John's on Patmos. He's being given vision. He's seeing all these things. Now on earth, in Revelation 11, John says, there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it leave out the court which is outside the temple the temple's not there well John's writing about a lot of things that weren't there right he's sharing many things that were to come he understood this was about the things that much must soon take place so John writes down what John sees and the naos is the word that he uses there, get up and measure the naos of God. Do you remember what I told you the naos is? It's the holy place and the holy of holies. That's it. Just the inner part of the temple. It's not the court of sacrifice. It's just the inner part. And that's fascinating to me. What we come to is number four, now in our list of temples, the third Jerusalem temple, or what you could call the tribulation temple. The third Jerusalem temple. A third temple, yes, must be built. Must be standing in Jerusalem by the midpoint of the tribulation. It has to happen. Why? Because God's word says so. Because the word declares that that temple is there. And by the way, I need to make a quick correction for you. I did this on Wednesday night. I want to make sure you all have it. If you have those little pieces of paper that I handed out to you, something's wrong. Which is why you never take the word of a man. You take the word of God. You don't trust any little pieces of paper that Pastor Rick passes out to you. If I give you a piece of paper, my phone number may or may not be the phone number on it. So, on this, it it says, it kind of has the breakdown, a travel guide for going through Revelation chapters 1 through 21, and it says at Revelation 8 and 9, the great tribulation begins the second three and a half years. You need to move that down. Because the great tribulation, the second three and a half years, as per Revelation 11, begins between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So in the first three and a half years, what you get is you get the seal judgments, and then you get the first six trumpet judgments, and then we hit the midpoint. Why? Because right here, he says, leave out the temple, or leave out the, leave out the outside, the court outside the temple, verse 2, do not measure it, for it's been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. This is the midpoint of the tribulation. There's another three and a half years after this point. And while we are in a parenthetical section, we are not in an allegorical section. So we have come to this point after the sixth trumpet has blown, and now he is told, measure the temple. And don't measure the outer court, because for 42 more months, it's going to be tread underfoot by the Gentiles. Are you with me? This is the midpoint of the tribulation. I apologize for getting excited and putting it earlier. Sometimes you got to review these things and think through them again and go, oh, that's right, that's right. So fix your little pieces of paper. 
just move the great tribulation down to right between Revelation 11 and 12. Okay? And if you don't want to do that, I'll just have Yeva print up all new ones because you're lazy. So. <laughs> so, the third, Jerusalem temple. A third temple must be built. But John is told, measure these things. Interesting. Get up and measure the temple of God. Why? Why measure? We talked about this midweek. Because that's what you do with your land. That's what you do to determine and declare your possession. So John the Revelator is now John the Surveyor. He's John the Assessor. And he's measuring the things that belong to God. And I find that interesting because I have long thought about this. This is the tribulation temple that he's referring to. This is the temple that Antichrist is going to desolate. Antichrist will enter this temple. Daniel 9, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Antichrist is going to enter this temple and there declare himself to be God. It's called the abomination of desolation. And it happens right at the midpoint. When Antichrist violates, breaks the covenant that Daniel talks about. Halfway into the seven year covenant, so three and a half years in, he violates it. He goes into the temple says, I'm God. Worship me as God. And so I've often thought of the tribulation temple as the temple. That's, That's the tribulation temple. It's still a temple of God. It is built and consecrated for God. It is dedicated to God. And though it is a tribulation temple, it still belongs to God. This is stunning to think about because before the Lord said through Haggai that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory, He said in Haggai 2 verse 8, I love this verse, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. You could say even when all the silver and gold was off in Babylon, God's like, hey, that's mine. That belongs to me. That was consecrated to me. One of my favorite moments, and I'm just going to break it open for you. In our Israel tours is when we stand on the Mount of Olives and we look across and we talk about all these things and we review many of these things and we recognize that verse, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts, even as we look across at the silver dome of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the gold dome of the Dome of the Rock. The Muslims would claim, that's ours. The Lord would say, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, you are on my property. This belongs to me. Allah is a false god anyway. Nothing on the Temple Mount belongs to Allah because Allah doesn't exist. But the Lord, the one true God, His name is Yahweh. I am Yeshua, Jesus Christ. He owns it all. It belongs to Him. So John is given explicit instructions to go measure this. Look at verse 2. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Outside the Naos, which is the holy place and the holy of holies. Leave out the rest of the court. Do not measure it, for it's been given to the nations. They will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months, three and a half years. And I told everybody on Wednesday night, 42 months is always applied to the last three and a half years. So for that amount of time, leave it out. The Naos, just measure the sanctuary. Just look at that. I think the second temple will be built 
as part of Antichrist's global peace initiative. Now, I, I can't prove that. that. A lot of prophecy scholars over the years have said that's, that's probably going to happen because along comes this man of peace and he's going to come up with this amazing covenant that everybody signs on to. The Jews and the rest of the world and the Muslims. Everybody says, yeah, yeah, that'll work. That'll work. Hey, peace. We'll do this. But he's going to enter it and he's going to desecrate it. But to build a Jewish temple... To build that tribulation temple, people would say, well, you have to destroy the Dome of the Rock. Now, you travelers to Israel, you seasoned ones, hold your word. (laughs) To build the Jewish temple, you'd have to destroy the Dome, right? I mean, it's right there in the middle of the Temple Mount. You got it. Listen, Biblical Archaeological Review, March and April of 1983. Jewish physicist Dr. Asher Kaufman wrote a landmark article. After 16 years of research about the temple and the temple mount, and he showed that the Holy of Holies in the temple was not, could not be located at the site of the Dome of the Rock Mosque. The site is off. It's in the wrong place. There are two exposed pieces of bedrock on the top of the temple mount today. One of them exposed in that it's inside the Dome of the Rock shrine. But people used to be able to go into the Dome of the Rock, even non-Muslims, and see this, this big craggy rock. But that's what it is. It's a huge kind of sharp craggy. It's not flat. You couldn't put the Ark of the Covenant on it. It wouldn't stand up. You need something flat. And it's fascinating because in Asher Kaufman's uh, research, he showed that it had to be in another place because, again, the ark couldn't sit there on that rock. Now, Muslims in Muslim revisionist history claim that that rock is where Abraham sacrificed who? No, Ishmael. You guys are not good Muslims. Abraham sacrificed Ishmael, if you've read, you know, the Quran, right? Isn't that what happened? No. No, complete revisionist history. But that's what they say. It happened there on that rock. So that's why they built the Dome of the Rock over. That's their claim. Here's the thing. Kaufman's research showed that the ark could not sit there. It would need a nice, smooth, flat stone surface on which to stand. Furthermore, in the Jewish Mishnah, Yoma chapter 5 verse 2, it says that when the priest stood in the holy place, that is in front of the veil, so the, the veil behind him and the ark behind that, when he stood there, if he looked out the entrance of the sanctuary, the, the Naos, and straight out through the temple court, that he would look directly through, could see directly to the eastern gate in a straight line from where he was standing in front of the Ark of the Covenant, which was on the other side of the veil. A straight line out to the eastern gate. 300 feet north of the Dome of the Rock, there's a strange, incongruous little stone canopy or cupola it, it doesn't make sense because when you walk around the Dome of the Rock and when you're up on the Temple Mount, it's just kind of, it just stands out there all by itself. No one looks at it. It's kind of strange. It, it doesn't seem like it even belongs there. It stands over the only other exposed bedrock from the Temple Mount. Smooth, flat, stable. And if you stand right there at that cupola and look directly east, guess what you're looking at? the eastern gate of the temple in a direct line of sight. It's in the right place. 
When we go, Roni, our, our tour guide, will go up on the Temple Mount, and we do a, we, we do a temple walkthrough. We go over to the Eastern Gate, we talk about things there, but then we actually walk toward this little cupola as we're walking there. And I've done this now, I don't even know how many times, seven or eight times, and every time I walk with, with Roni, the last few years, I'm just getting excited. Because as we go toward, I know what he's going to say. I know where we're headed. I know what, but it's so exciting to realize the placement of these things. And again, when you walk it out, you see it, you know it. It's in the perfect place. And I believe that that little cupola is where the Ark of the Covenant used to stand, where the Naos, the sanctuary of the temple was and can be again. And remember, all John's told to measure is the Naos. There's plenty of room for that right there, right next to the Dome of the Rock. You can put it there. The Muslims who originally built that little stone cupola, that little canopy, they have two names for it. They call it the Dome of the Tablets. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Tablets. They also call that little cupola the Dome of the Spirit. The Spirit of God said, I will meet with you above the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant contained the stone stone tablets. Deuteronomy 10.2 and Exodus 25.22. Just look them up. Even Islam recognizes, or at least once openly recognized, that that was the location where the Jewish Ten Commandments were housed. Where the Spirit of God met with the High Priest. And here's the thing. The temple can be built. As described in Revelation 11, the Naos, that sanctuary, can be built right there, right next to the Dome of the Rock. You still have room. Everybody can be happy. It's a great idea. The Muslims can have the Dome and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and then the Jews can have their temple right here on the Temple Mount. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? And I think Antichrist is going to use that as his ploy. Everybody's happy. A treaty that politically manipulates Israel, the Muslims, and the whole entire world. By the way, speaking of treaties and speaking of peace plans, keep your eyes open. Because the Trump peace deal is finished. It's written. It's ready to be unveiled, rolled out. Jared Kushner is is good to go. And this thing is going to be rolled out after the Israeli elections, which take place on April the 9th. I don't know what it's going to be. Will it be another roadmap to peace? Remember George Bush's roadmap to peace? This was going to bring peace to the Middle East. Man, that map's been torn up and thrown out years and years ago. Every president who's tried to touch Jerusalem has found it to be a heavy, burdensome stone. And it's been messy. So we're going to see what happens. You know, Lord willing, we're here on April 9th. A new peace plan is going to be unveiled. We'll see what goes on with that. Well, there's a curious prophecy in Ezekiel that may be relevant to a Jewish temple right next to the Muslim shrine side by side. Like John, Ezekiel was told to measure the temple. And in Ezekiel 42, verse 20, he measured it on the four sides and it had a wall around it, the length 500, the width 500, to divide, listen, to divide between the holy and the profane. So that may be it. That 
the Dome of the Rock is not destroyed. It's still sitting there during the tribulation. And so is the third temple, the Jewish tribulation temple, as we're calling it, with a dividing wall between what is holy and what is profane. Why would you call the Dome of the Rock profane? Because there's writing all over it that declares things like God is not begotten, nor does he beget. But there is no God but Allah. Profane. So the holy and the profane and a dividing wall. And again, Revelation 11, verse 2, says, Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. So forget about the area outside the naos. It's unnecessary. It's, it's unneeded. i got to tell you something else about that, but hang on just a second. I know we're already over time. I don't care. Let's keep going. <laughs> so there's going to be a fourth Jerusalem temple. Keeping that in mind, there will be a fourth Jerusalem temple. just going to mention this one quickly. It's the Millennial Temple. The Bible tells us, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch... For he will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. That is, of king and priest. He will be the first king, priest, priestly king. Jesus Christ, sitting and ruling and reigning on the throne of the temple that he builds. And that's the millennial temple. And there's so much more we can talk about and probably will in in, uh, days to come, Lord willing. Ezekiel describes that millennial temple. If you want to study it, Ezekiel 40 through 48. And it is sprawling and it is breathtaking. What the temple in Jerusalem is going to look like at that time, it's just overwhelming. But now, staying with me in review, the heavenly temple, which we talked about, the pattern for all else. And then the first temple of Solomon. And the second temple of Zerubbabel with Herod's overhaul, H2O. And then the tribulation temple. And then the millennial temple. So we're five now of the seven. But there are two more. Two more temples listed in Scripture. Two more to be aware of. Revelation 11 verse 1. Again, he said, there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And I find this so interesting. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God. And the altar. And those who worship in it. I want you to measure these three things. It's not just the temple that's being measured. It's the temple, yes. And what is the temple? The naos. The inner sanctuary. Measure that, John. The holy place and the holy of holies. Measure that. That's all you need to measure of the temple. Then he says, measure the altar. Commentators are divided on this one. Which altar? There's the altar of sacrifice, and there's the altar of incense. And I'm telling you, it can only be the altar of incense. There's no other option. Why? Because the altar of incense is inside the naos that is measured. Everything outside is given over to the Gentiles to be trampled. The rest is trampled underfoot. So it's, it's that. Well, wait a minute, though. It, the bronze altar of sacrifice, though, wouldn't they need that? Listen. From God's perspective, the bronze altar is irrelevant. The sacrifice has already been made. 
Once and for all by Jesus Christ, Hebrews 7, verse 26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this Jesus did once for all when he offered himself. Now, I'm not saying there won't be a bronze altar of sacrifice out there, out in front of the naos, in front of the temple, in that courtyard. There may be, but God doesn't need it. doesn't matter what's going on out there. It is irrelevant to the Spirit of God. And I would assume, however, that He is still accepting prayer from the altar of incense that's going up from the naos. But the sacrifice has been made. But watch this. I hadn't even caught this one before. John's told to measure three things. The temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. What is the third measurable possession of God? It's the people. It's those who worship in it. Measure them. Um, oh, okay. She's 5'3". He's 6'1". That guy's 5'11". Please, please don't tell me we have to measure weight and girth and body mass. Measure him, John. Okay. Excuse me. Can I just get this tape around you? Measure those who worship in it. Measure the worshipers, John. Who are the worshipers? Those who are bringing their heart to the Father. Those who worship in it. Tragically, in every church, on every Sunday, or on any given Sunday, there are those who worship in it, and there are those who are in it. John is told, measure those who worship in it. Those who bring their hearts to the Father's house. The measure of any temple has to do with the heart of the worshiper. Our worship is the measure of our temple, is the measure of of this house. The measure of the bridge fellowship as a building is just a building. The worth, the value here is the heart that we bring to God. The the measure of any temple is the heart of the worshiper in the temple, in the church, in the house, which brings us to the sixth temple, and that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And Paul talks about that in the context of sexual immorality. Think about that. How would that change the perspective of Christians who are moving in together? Christians who are sleeping with their girlfriends or boyfriends. Christians who are saying, ah, yeah, I know I've got this sexual thing going on, but it's not that big a deal. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul even says, so are you going to join that temple to the temple of a prostitute? How that would change our perspective in everything we did if we truly believed, not as a colloquialism, but as absolute truth, that our bodies house the Spirit of the living God. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Man, whose house is it? 
Who's the owner? Who's the inhabitant of this house? How I answer makes all the difference between the holy and the profane. Is this a holy house? What is the measure of your temple? Is there a wall that separates the holy from the profane? 2 Corinthians 6.15 Paul says, What harmony has Christ with Belial? What is a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And they will, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And this is the significance. Don't miss this. Of these temples, these bodies right now. Measure the worshipers, John. Because these temples are previews. Of the coming attraction. What do you mean? The seventh temple. That is the new Jerusalem temple. Revelation 21 verse 22. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. Right now, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Then, He is the temple that surrounds us all. What's the measure of your temple? Back in John chapter 2, the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? That is, for coming in and cleaning house. And Jesus answered them and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the word he uses for temple there is not the same word as above where it says he found in the temple those who were selling. That is the eiron or eiros. Destroy this temple, he says, and in three days I will raise it up. He uses the word naos. This sanctuary, this holy place, this holy of holies. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, get this, of the temple of his body. Jesus recognized his physical body as the naos as the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. Three days after that temple was torn down, Jesus raised it up again, right? In the resurrection. How long has it been since the first temple was built? It's been 3,000 years. And if a day is as a thousand years to God... What might be the implication for these temples? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Father, there is so much to these things we haven't even touched this morning. We have scratched the surface on on the history of the Holy Temple, of the Jerusalem Temple, Lord of your heavenly temple, of the millennial temple to come and the temples of these bodies. But Father, my prayer to you is that we recognize in all of this That you desire to inhabit holy houses. And that we, as believers in Jesus and servants of the Lord, have made that commitment to you. We've handed over the keys to these homes. And we've said, come and dwell. And you promised you would. Jesus, you said, the Father and I will come and, and make our abode with you. Father, I pray for holiness. And I pray for righteousness. Not self-righteousness, not pretentiousness, not religiosity, Father, but, but a holiness that comes of knowing that Your Spirit dwells in me. 
The glory of the Lord that filled the temple that the priest couldn't even go in. Your glory inhabits me. Your Spirit is here. Father, I pray that You would help me to live a life like that. Just in that simple recognition. I pray that for the body of believers here at the bridge. That we would recognize the importance, the value of these vessels as temples of the, of the Lord. That we would be walking sanctuaries until the day comes, Lord. And I believe it is any time when You will raise up these bodies. Lord, keep our eyes on Jesus. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen.